passage for this morning is 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11. And we're in this passage because we've been making, we've been making our way through the book. And this is the next one along the way. And we call it a book, but it's really a letter. It's a letter that Paul sent. We're reading somebody, or not Paul, Peter, sorry. But we're reading somebody else's mail. Peter wrote a letter. The Apostle Peter wrote a letter later in life to, uh, uh, to churches that were uh, you know, spread across modern-day Asia Minor to people that were relatively young in their faith and all people who face a collective challenge. And I think it's one that, that we can identify with. And, and here's what that challenge is. How do I live out my faith amongst a bunch of people that don't understand my faith? Or, or even further, how do I live out my faith amongst a bunch of people who don't like my faith? It, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, how long you've been walking with Jesus or how little you've been walking with Jesus. Uh, if you're living out your faith in this world, that's a tricky one to work out. Like discerning what it looks like to live in but not of the world requires a lot of wisdom. Unless, unless you're completely isolated, which some of us do, that's you know, the tack we take. Unless you're completely isolated, that, that can be a tough wisdom question. And there's a lot of wisdom on the other side of that question. And that, that's actually what I think Peter has been trying to give us for several weeks in a row now as we've come back to this letter Peter is seeking to answer the question for us by giving us wisdom about what it looks like to live amongst people that don't believe the same things that we believe. And so with that, I'm going to turn to this text. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything... God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I pray that as we uh, bring our questions to this text, that you would work out our questions and apply your wisdom. 
Our Holy Spirit, you would be at work helping us to discern what your will for us is. Uh, Would you tell us again what it means that we are your people? And would you show us Jesus? And help me, your servant, to love these friends well. We are pilgrims journeying together along the way to the home that you promise us. And so encourage our hearts. I pray that every word might honor you. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's occurred to me over the past few weeks, I was talking on the phone with somebody earlier this week, and they said, this has been a a few intense texts in a row. And I would say, yes, that's right, it has been. Um, And uh, and the constant refrain, as Peter has zeroed in on the, the idea of Christian suffering, the constant refrain has been, One of caution, right? There's been a lot of don'ts. Don't return evil for evil. Don't return reviling for reviling. Uh, Continue to remain subject to your authorities. I mean, it's been a lot of that lately. And uh, and what occurs to me is that it can leave us all feeling very vulnerable. Um, and, And in fact, that's what suffering does to us. In a lot of ways, it makes us feel vulnerable. And the whole thing had me thinking back to a few years ago. I... I, uh, when it, if I, you probably remember exactly where you were. I remember exactly where I was when we first heard that the pandemic was spreading across America. Uh, I was in a hotel in Atlanta for some meetings. I had to, I wasn't pastoring here at this church at the time. I was up in Tennessee and, uh, and they said, I don't know what's going on, but you got to get back. And so I had to drive back. And if you remember, rumors were flying all over the place at that time. I, I was told, hey, you might not be able to cross the state border. Like they could, be, they could be locking things down. But I got back and I still remember that Saturday um, when we had heard that there was a church just north of us had thrown a party and a bunch of people got sick. And we're like, what in the world is going on? There was this invisible enemy that was at work amongst us. And, uh, and what were we going to do? Should we cancel tomorrow's service or should we continue? And, and more importantly, what's it going to look like for us to shepherd our people during this crisis. And the more we talked about that, the more we realized we really had no idea what we were talking about. And we did end up canceling, like, like Red Mountain did on that same Sunday. And, uh, and, um, but the, but the, the whole thing made us feel so vulnerable because we had no idea. Like I remember one, one of the guys was in there and he had a coffee cup from McDonald's. And he said, I bought this at a drive-thru on the way here. Like, should I be drinking this right now? Like, we, had, we knew nothing. And so what we knew was that when we walked out of that meeting, we knew we were going to have to arm ourselves with a certain knowledge if we were going to try and attend and love people well during this new world that we were living in. In verse 1, Peter says, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He's saying that we need to learn to think the way that Jesus does. Paul says, uh, Paul says that we've been given the mind of Christ. And that's what Peter's doing. He is applying the mind of Christ to what we face as we live in pilgrims in the world. And what I want to do is I want to zero in on a couple of different lists that you see here in this passage. You see a list of things that we lean away from in verses 3 and 4. And you see a list of things that we lean toward 
in uh, verses 7 through 11. We lean away, with the mind of Christ, we lean away from certain things and we lean toward others. And so here are my points for you. When we look at these things, we see Peter applying the mind of Christ to how we look at the world and what we give to each other. How we look at the world and what we give to each other. First, how we look at the world. There's this goal that he, that he gives us. He says, uh, he says uh, when we talk about how we think with this mind of Christ, Peter calls us to be self-controlled and sober-minded. Self-controlled and sober-minded. He's talking about what it means to maintain a clear head. And that's, that's really what sobriety is, right? It's the ability to stand in a fallen world, whether in crisis or, uh, or in times of flourishing, and, uh, and really keep our wits about us. Um, we are called to think clearly about who we are and what's going on around us. And this is in contrast to some of these things that he says we lean away from in verse 3, where he talks about drunkenness and sensuality, passions and lawless idolatry. Those are ways then, and the, look, listen, the way of sin hasn't really changed much through the ages. Those are ways then and those are ways now that we actually try to seek to escape reality. Um, My wife was gone uh, over this past weekend. She was on the women's retreat. I heard it was a great time. And uh, and so, but when Shonda leaves, that means that me and the boys are going to get to watch a movie that Shonda might not want to watch. She doesn't like boxing movies, and uh, I love boxing movies, so this was the time to show the boys Cinderella Man. Uh, I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's got some cringy language, so I can't, like, take a look at it if you want to show it to your kids. But there was this picture here, I think, of what Peter's talking about. So it's a period piece that's set... During the Great Depression, that was a time of great suffering for a lot of the people. It was a really hard time. A lot of people were out of work, and, uh, and he was this once wealthy, successful boxer, and they had to sell everything, and he was fighting with all that he had in order to take care of his family and remain present in his marriage. And it, it continued, and it, the way that he continued to give and to give and to give himself to remain present with his family and his wife during such a hard time. And the foil for his character was his best friend, Mike, a guy who could not endure what he was facing. And so you often found him in a bar, you found him drinking. He was trying to escape reality. It's a contrast that Peter is laying out here for what it means to be sober-minded and self-controlled. One's remaining present while the other's trying to escape. And so the challenge for us here is how do we maintain a clear head and a sober mind when we're living in such a confusing world? How do we think about these things? Well, according to Peter, we do this by remembering the end. It's telling to me that he gives us this challenge right after he says, the end of all things is at hand. See that verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter began this letter by talking about this. Uh, he said, Jesus was made manifest in the last times uh, for your sake. Paul says something very similar in Romans 13. He says, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, it's hard to read these things, like he just said, last things, the end is near, salvation is nearer now, and not think, okay, he wrote that 2,000 years ago. Like, what... <laughs> What in the world does that mean? That's a, that would be a good question to ask. So let me try and unpack this. 
Um, one of the great tools that we have as God's people in our toolbox is, uh, is in discerning the time that we're in, like understanding the age that we live in. And the Bible tells us a story about the world's history and its future. Uh, It tells us that God created all things. That's when the world began, with God creating all things and calling it good. And listen, when he created you, he rejoiced over you. And he called it very good. And then he tells us that sin and suffering entered the world... When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that a relationship with God was broken, and that every ounce of sin in our own hearts and in other people's hearts, every, every ounce of suffering that we endure can trace its origin to that moment. And then, uh, uh, but, the story, but here's the, th- the, the remarkable thing about this is that the story's not over. Like, it didn't end there. But the character of God is shown... And that every moment, from that moment until now, and the next moment, is marked by God's work of redemption in the world and in his people. That you and I, we are living in an age of redemption that that finds its culmination in Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. That, that is our reality. That Jesus is the hero of the story. And he promises us great hope. And so our present is a hard present. Even though we live with hope that Jesus promises a day when all things will be made new, that the world still doesn't quite reflect that. And so, and so there's, there's confusion, there's difficulty in that moment. It, it can be a hard present. But the Bible tells us that the end began when Jesus rose from the dead. That he gave us a vision of the last day. And we're told that the sum of all of our hope is bound up in that day when, when, uh, that will be fully consummated when he comes back. And so listen, if you believe all of that is true, that Jesus is alive, that he is our king and lives right now, sat down at the right hand of God the Father, then what the Bible is telling you is that we really are in the last stages of history. That the end is near because everything that was necessary to accomplish your salvation has already been done. Nothing more needs to be done. Jesus was on the cross when he said, it is finished. The end is near, and he writes the story on our hearts, and he tells us that we're in the last chapter. And so we can have peace now, is what Peter's telling us, because we know the end of the story. This might be a, a silly example, but it was a few uh, weeks ago. No, it wasn't. It was one week. No, it was two weeks ago. And uh, when uh, y'all, many of you know, I'm a UVA basketball fan. And uh, um, 
and UVA was playing Duke, and that's a big day, okay? It, you can be having a bad season, but if you beat Duke, it's a, it's a good season. And, uh, and UVA was playing Duke, but I had to work on something, and so I was having a hard time focusing. And, uh, and many of you know exactly that, you know, what that's like. You're trying to cut yourself off from the world. You don't want to be on Twitter or anywhere. You don't want any kind of electronic communications at all because it might tell you what the score is. You're, you're recording the game, and, uh, and you're going to watch it later. Just get what you're working on um, to, become, to get finished, and then maybe you'll be able to watch the game. And you're just trying to avoid all the spoilers. And so I'm working away. I'm like, you know, working, working, working. And then an elder, who will go unnamed, um, texts me, congratulations, and then a, like a V saber sign, you know, like he tells me, he told me what happened in the game. I had no idea that it was controversial. It always is, it seems like, with UVA basketball. But, but, uh, but here's, here's what I learned from that, is that watching that game, even though I knew the end, was actually a thoroughly enjoyable viewing experience because the game wasn't always going well. Like, it, it, there were times where you just want to yell, right, As, at the refs or at your players or at the other team's players or just uh, at basketball in general. But, but I think, you know, but, but I wasn't worried about it. Like, I watched that, that game pretty loose, just knowing what the score was going to be at the end of the game. Because I knew the end of the story. Now, we all know there's a big difference, right? Between keeping our wits about us during a tough game and when life is hard. There's no doubt about that. But the same principle applies. That Peter is telling us the key to remaining poised. um, The key to maintaining a sober mind is remembering the end of the story that Jesus promises to us, that Jesus won for us. That your story ends with grace and with flourishing. And nothing more needs to be done to secure the way your story ends. Listen, when it comes to suffering, the Bible never tells you to get over it. And it doesn't tell you what to do to overcome our suffering. Instead, what God does is he holds out a promise for us and tells us that our story ends in beauty. That Jesus has sat down at God's right hand. His work is done. And he said, it is finished. That's where healing begins, right there. And you may say, well, where does that leave us then? If I, if I believe that's true, and I trust my present and my future to Jesus, then where does that leave us? Uh, if we can have peace, then what? Well, Peter tells us that we are set free to now engage the good work of reflecting who Jesus is to each other. This is, this is what we give to each other. Look at verse 8. It tells us to keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. That is a beautiful verse. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. We, and, and, and he says we'll show our love by how we use our homes. Look at verse 9. We are to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We are a people with the, with the mind of Christ 
who lean into the work of love and we lean away from false versions of love like we see in, in verse 3. Sensuality, passions, or using our homes to, uh, to, um, <clears throat> uh, to celebrate some of these things with irreverent parties. That's what that verse is detailing there. Uh, those would have been going on in people's homes. How we love each other shows each other what we believe about who Jesus is. And it seems Peter is talking about how we go about reflecting Jesus both to each other, how we show Jesus to each other, and how we show Jesus to the world around us. How? Because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, only Jesus covers the entire weight of our sin with his blood. But one of the ways that we show Jesus' love to each other is how we forgive each other when we sin. That, that repentance and forgiveness isn't just something that we do with Jesus. It's something that's it's a way of life for us with each other. And, and, and I would say that um, often the work of repentance and forgiveness is, you'll find that in really valuable rich relationships too. Like I would say that that, that probably means something deep and wonderful about your relationship with a friend if you're able to do the good work of repenting and forgiving each other. I've heard someone say that the work of love is sometimes like throwing a blanket over a fire, that it covers the fire and the fire dies out. But how does it do that? By cutting the fire off from the, from the air that feeds it. Um, and that's what love does. It, it doesn't allow the work of evil to breathe into our relationships for very long. So we keep short accounts with each other by our sincere love. And we also show our sincere love by how we think about our homes. That show hospitality without grumbling. I think we could all guess what Peter is talking about there when he says... Without, that's just hilarious, without grumbling. Um, here, Peter isn't just talking about how we should have each other over for dinner, although that is good, important work. We should be doing that. Um, but how we are to open our homes to each other and to people that don't know Jesus. This was of strategic importance. This was critically important, um, <clears throat> especially for those traveling in the first century Greco-Roman world. Um, generally speaking, there weren't many places to stay. If you were traveling and you came across a town, uh, inns were, were known, notorious to be dangerous and unpleasant places. So what you would do if you were traveling is you would go to a town center uh, with the hope of being invited into a home by somebody. And this practice of hospitality to the stranger, bringing them in, giving them a warm meal and a, and a place to sleep was one of the ways that Christianity spread across the ancient world. And, uh, and it was picked up in the early church and has been handed down to us as one of the traditions of Christian love. And I'll just say, uh, as someone who has been in many of your homes, sometimes I have walked right in as a stranger to you, uh, this is this this, this work of love and hospitality is something I've seen in many of you, and I felt loved by that. But to encourage you, every time you are opening your homes to somebody, you are reflecting something of the character of God. The Bible begins and ends with God as a host. The Bible begins with him creating this environment where people can flourish. He's preparing a place 
And it ends with this promise of this place he's preparing for us now, that God, God is a host to us. And before Jesus left, he said to his disciples, I am going to a place to prepare a place for you. That God is a host. One of the most life-giving ways we go about the work of love to those around us is simply by preparing a place for them. John Dennis is a pastor. Who, he, uh, he's written some about this. He planted a church in downtown Chicago. And uh, he put the work of hospitality right in the center of, uh, of that church's vision. And this is what he wrote. He wrote a lot, but this is, this is something of what he wrote. He said, we practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our homes because God has shown his goodness to us. And his grace overflows the threshold of our homes. Listen, the thing that grabs me about this is that our homes are the place where we can often have conversations that we just can't have anywhere else, right? Like if we're pilgrims journeying along to our true home, if that's really what we are, then we help each other by opening up our homes to each other. Our homes are the place where we can explore intellectual questions, where we can talk about the things that we're frustrated by. Our homes are the places where we can ask for help. Our homes are the places where we can join with each other in our suffering. And so when you're opening up your home to someone, there's no doubt it can be costly. That's true. But you also might be providing a guest with the only unqualified, unhurried, and welcoming environment they get to enjoy during the week. It is a unique gift that you could be giving them. You're giving them something they certainly don't get at work. You're giving them something they might not even get in their own home. And there's no question that one of the ways God shows his love to us is in taking a meal together. And so could it be that the best place for reflecting the love of Jesus to each other and to those around us is around your table. Since we talk about serving others, there's a final call in this passage that we use our gifts to serve each other. Verse 10, he says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. He says, each of you has a gift. Each of you. Each of you has a gift, and that gift is evidence of God's grace to you, and he calls us to be stewards. Notice that he doesn't create a master list of spiritual gifts. You you might find those in other places, but that's not what Peter's doing here. He's actually calling you to the work, all of us, not you and me, all of us to the work of discernment. How has God gifted us uniquely and, and, uh, and is calling us to use those gifts for the good of the church? And so if you're gifted to speak or teach, then he says, speak or teach according to the oracles of God. If he's gifted you to serve in another way, then serve in another way. And all of this, we do this with the strength that God supplies to us. Uh, so ho- however we serve... At the end of the day, what we have to remember is that we're engaged in something um, entirely beyond us. That as stewards of God's grace, we become reflections of God's grace to each other. That's magical. It's almost magical to each other and to the world around us. That many may know and see and hear the goodness 
of Jesus through the ways that we love each other. Listen, the church is God's love offering to the world. In 2 Corinthians, Paul calls the church God's letter of love given to the world. And one of my favorite authors likes to say this, that the church is this colony of heaven put right in the middle of a culture of death. And I tell you that because it can seem when you look at this passage that Peter is telling us that we respond to to living in a hard world as pilgrims by turning inward toward each other in response to a hostile world that doesn't understand us. It can feel like that's what he's doing. But there is no doubt that he's telling us we, we together are to take a particular responsibility for each other's well-being. But he's also telling us that this is one of the ways we put Jesus' love on display to people that don't understand what we believe. That, that, that the world might see in our community engaging freely in the work of love something beautiful that they might want to be a part of, that they might see the riches and the depths of the God of love reflected in who we are with each other. Let me close this way. When I was a kid, uh, growing up in Virginia, uh, I I remember doing this. uh, I think I was a little kid. Um, We went as a family, I believe. might have been a school trip, but we went to Luray Caverns. Luray Caverns is in central Virginia. It was about an hour north of where I grew up. And if you're ever in that area, go there. And when you do go there, make sure you check out the stalactite organ that's deep within that cave. There's a great story behind it. Uh, like all caves in Luray Caverns, there are stalactites. There's are icicles of stone hanging from the vaulted ceiling all over the cave. And, uh, and somebody named Leland Sprinkle, best name ever. He was a mathematician and a scientist who worked for the Pentagon. Only some, somebody like this would, would think about this. He realized that if you took a little mallet to a stalactite, it made a deep resonant note. And, uh, and so what he did was he thought we could make an organ out of this. And so we went around to all these like hundreds and thousands of stalactites and tested them all and found ones that match every note on an organ console. And some of them had to be shaped, like he'd chip away at them, adjust their length. But when he had it all kind of figured out, he put these motorized mallets attached to the stalactite, wired them all together to an organ console. And when you hear it, it is unbelievable. Singing stones connected to each other, connected to something central, Each one with a part to play in the music that it offers to everyone who passes by. If you belong here in this church or in a church somewhere else, earlier in this chapter, Peter called all those who belong to Jesus a living stone. If we could press that metaphor a little further, you are also a singing stone. Jesus' song offering of love to the world, bearing witness to the love of Jesus. And what's the song that we offer? What's the song that will tell the world who Jesus is? 
in the same room where Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He also said this. He told his disciples to love one another. A new commandment I give to you. As I have loved you, so you shall love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The world will know who Jesus is by how you love one another. And so we sing with acts of love, with acts of service, with acts of mercy. We are singing a song of the one that has loved us first. With the mind of Christ, we lean into love because we have been so loved. Amen. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, write this song of love on our hearts. Remind us of your deep and searching love for us, how you win us to yourself and redeem us to yourself. Remind us with conviction of the truth of these things and set us free by your love in order that we would love. May we be known as ambassadors of Christ's love in this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.